On today's episode of Created... The people who are in the panel still aren't the decision makers. We're, we're not, I'm not green lighting anyone's film. I have no, you know, uh, feature film fund or whatever. You know, I have to go to the same sources to get the money. What I think would be more powerful is like, what about the people who are in the positions of power to green light and actually get things done? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't that be the panel? Welcome to Season 2 of Created, the Advertising and Design Club of Canada podcast that explores how some of the best campaigns get made. Theme music and recording studio, Care of Grace and Music, and I'm your host, Lorena Martin-Evans. So, a lot has changed since we first started recording Season 2. In fact, part of today's episode was recorded in early March 2020. Little did we know how the world was going to fundamentally change in a matter of days. This interview features Academy Award-nominated director Hubert Davis and Joseph Benici, partner and ECD at Ben Simon Byrne, One Method, Narrative. Because so much has happened before we run the episode, we decided to bring Hubert and Joseph back, and they're here today virtually to share their perspective on our industry and where we stand in current day. Joseph and Hubert, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. So for this is so weird already because we're recording this podcast, this new intro on Zoom, which has sort of become the new normal. And uh, it's so weird because last time I saw you guys, really we were in Grayson Studios, and now here we are recording over Zoom. And I don't even know where to begin, gentlemen, because so much has happened. How are you both feeling? Ah, that's a good question. I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good. I think it's it is interesting to like to think of when we recorded that podcast, like what was going on in the world, and we we're just you know having some tea, some coffee, some laughs, you know, and then you know how much has changed since then. I think is uh, has been pretty interesting. But yeah, it's, I, you know, I'm overall I'm feeling uh, cautiously optimistic. I think, um, but obviously with the awareness that. Um, yeah, things things have changed. A lot of things have changed in the world and just trying to uh, not get overwhelmed by it, but kind of see the positive in it and try and, uh, yeah, try and try and help with it, you know? Because there's COVID and there's the realities with COVID, but also there's been a seismic shift in our consciousness and conversations, difficult conversations are really unfolding. Um, realities being exposed, privileges being revealed. Um, and I'd love to spend some time as the intro part to your to your podcast that we did, talking about uh, the ad industry, what we can be doing better, how can we be better allies, how can we continue learning, and as an industry really really grow from all the movements and experiences that are revealing itself now. That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a big it's a big one. I mean, industry stuff aside, like I, you know, me and Hubert have been collaborators now for a better part of a decade um, on various projects and have been, I think, great partners. And, you know, the, the idea of race, you know, it has come up before as we have been working through projects together. You know, one of the things that um, we shot together that we're both incredibly proud of is a film for White Ribbon uh, uh, to you know, shine a light on the root causes of toxic masculinity, of which there are, you know, thousands of causes, not just one. Um, But during the casting process, 
you know, we had to make a fundamental decision about, you know, since you were depicting the life of one boy growing up to eventually become a toxic male, we actually had to have the conversation of race quite early on. And we ended up moving and, and, and telling the story of a Caucasian male because we felt that if we had, for example, cast a black male, there would be a layer of racism involved um, on this film that would actually muddy the issue that we were talking about because there's just that base level of systemic racism, which meant that our casting choice um, was almost dictated before we started that, that whole campaign. I don't know if you agree or disagree here, but that's sort of one of the things that really pops into mind is, as we've been working together over the years, one of the, the very real conversations that we've had about race. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, in every, it, it involves everything we do, you know, for sure in all our work and in, in particular, you know, the casting process and, and how we work and how we represent people um, on screen. And, you know, obviously I've, I've been a proponent of um, diversity and, and how we kind of push those boundaries. You know, I've been directing now for, you know, 15 years and to see, you know, it's really probably stayed in the same spot the conversation I think until now, like it's, it, I haven't really seen, there wasn't like a drastic change from, you know, 15 years ago to until today um, to have like actual real conversations about um, what that meant, you know, and really um, evaluating it. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's very complicated. You know, it's a, it's a very a loaded thing. It's a very an emotional um, conversation, I think. And, you know, in all the, the projects that I think Joseph and I have tried to work on that have been successful. I think the ones that have been successful are about um, changing perspectives in some way, you know, whether that was for Casey house or, or white ribbon, you know, we're, those are the ones that I think are the most powerful because you can kind of believe it with your heart that we actually can make changes. Like, the reason we do what we do is for people to um, to pay attention, to notice, to to think, you know, and that m- might sound a bit um, ambitious maybe sometimes, like sometimes, you know, uh, we're not able to do that and we're not trying to do that with, with some of the work, but I think we have an opportunity and a platform and that's what I'm realizing now more than ever is like, we've got this platform and this chance to, to say something. And if we don't say something, then, um, I don't, yeah, it's, I think it's harder to sleep at night, you know, Joseph at the agencies that you are, um, the, the ECD of that, have you guys had some big conversations there? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's been a conversation every day and every week, um, since the black lives matter movement, um, and George Floyd, I think, you know, very early on, we felt as an agency, we needed to talk to our own people about what our, um, what our perspective was on this. Um, we also wanted to get how they were feeling right away. And so, you know, we've been doing a number of initiatives over the past um, four weeks or so, five weeks or so, however long it's been, where we've um, really just been engaging almost every day with people from the agency, working towards 
like systemic change within our own agency, right? I think what we control within our four walls um, is the place where we start. But, you know, when it comes to diversity of the whole industry as a whole, I think there's a wider problem in advertising that just has never been addressed, you know? And I think not only do we have an opportunity to address issues within our own agency, but we're, we actually have to start addressing and be, vo- and be a voice in the issues of the ad industry in general. Um, you, you can't just have it one way or else you're never actually going to change everything. You can't try to uh, make right something within your own company um, that then when you, you know, go out to find candidates, we have an industry that doesn't welcome them. So, you know, it's, it's an incredibly complex thing and it's, it's overwhelming in its scope because then you think about, well, it's not just our industry. It, like, it then goes back to schooling and education and the systemic racism there. And then it goes back to name an industry, you know. Um, it's, it's overwhelming to sort of talk about in its scope. So what we've decided to do is very thoughtfully, let's address what we know we can control right now and what we can do quickly. And then let's set forth like a concrete plan for progress about how we're going to address some of the issues um, that we face as a, as a group of agencies and as an industry. I, th- I think total transparency is the only thing you can offer people right now right? Like we can't fix it overnight, but what you can offer is transparency in the process and the thinking and ask for feedback, ask for what people are thinking. Um, we feel as long as we can continue to do that on a daily basis, that we'll, we'll make the progress we need to make. Cause it's two sides of the coin. There's sort of the, um, how do we, how do we get more diversity inside the four walls, as you mentioned of the agency um, and then it's also how do we, as communicators, represent better on the screens that we portray? Um, so it, it's really interesting to have you both on today. Um, and the, the stories that follow with White Ribbon and Casey House in the second part of this podcast are so beautiful. And it's such a great episode. And I can't wait for the listeners to dive into that. Um, but just speaking with you two today, as you mentioned, this is such a, it's a huge ask. Um, how can we do better? How can we be better? Um, but because I have the both of you, it's sort of like this really interesting agency side of the coin and then Hubert with your production side of the coin. So in, in the production world, Hubert, what do you, what are you sort of seeing even in the last few weeks and months as, as sort of, you know, new voices and conversations are being held? Um, how are you feeling on the production end of things? Well, it's, it's funny. There's been, you know, a lot of conversations, conversations with other, mostly other directors to be, to be frank, like we're kind of uh, friends of mine, you know, um, we're just talking about like, well, what, what's the right thing to do from our end, you know, as far as like representation on set. And, you know, I I think, you know, we've all been on set. We've seen, you know, generally the crew makeup is not generally the most diverse group of people. Um, And how do we kind of foster that and change that fundamentally? And I think what, what's happened, like, if I'm going to be, you know, kind of totally honest about it, like generally what happens is, 
there's certain programs that exist and those programs are like the idea of people getting in at a, at the kind of, um, let's say that, that first layer, like a production assistant, you know, getting in and doing some stuff there. Um, you know, and there are kind of those programs, but the problem is that those situations aren't, those aren't really the decision makers and those aren't the people who are, um, like who are kind of working their way up the ladder in a lot of different positions. And so I think that's fundamentally where we have to start thinking about it is it's not enough just to like, you know, have a couple programs where people like come out and come and go, but really like trying to find ways of getting them in and under people who um, can kind of share their craft of like what they're doing and, and starting those opportunities um, at a, at a much kind of like more sustainable, higher level. And I think that, you know, that's generally what's happened is like diversity has been kind of seen as like, um, like, you know, I've sat on a panels and not just, you know, for advertising, but for, um, for film or documentary and sat on these diversity panels. And the idea is that they're going to have these diverse filmmakers. There's going to be young, um, you know, diverse audience who comes to see, cause these are people who want to get in the industry and figure out, and we kind of tell them our stories. But I think the irony of that is the people who are in the panel still aren't the decision makers. We're, we're not, I'm not green lighting anyone's film. I have no, you know, uh, feature film fund or whatever, you know, I have to go to the same sources to get the money. What I think would be more powerful is like, what about the people who are in the positions of power to green light and actually get things done? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't that be the panel? Like, shouldn't that be the panel that people are on to say, Hey, like this is what's happening and having a, an honest dialogue about like what they're green lighting, what they're not green lighting, you know, how many people they have that they're working with that are from underrepresented communities. You know, I think that's where um, we have to look at is really at a fundamental, like people who can make decisions, you know, like it's not, it's not enough to like try and get people in at the bottom because those people don't make any decisions. They're hired by, by other people. And that's why it, it never really, um, it never really like makes a hard impact because none of the people uh, are in the positions of power that they need to be in order to say, Hey, you know, I'm going to give this person a chance or, you know, I know this person or, you know, so I think, you know, from a production end, we're just starting to try and figure that out of how, um, how we start to change that in a, in a meaningful way um, that, you know, you know, I'm not the only, person of color, you know, on a set that I'm on, you know, and that's the truth. I've been, you know, you know, in that situation a fair bit over, over the years and, you know, we're trying to, uh, trying to change that. And for me, it's, you know, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing. I didn't know that I'd ever get to really have that honest conversation and be able to be someone who actually, um, could help to, to start making those changes. That's really powerful. Um, thank you for sharing that story. Are you hopeful that those people in power are starting to listen to those conversations? Like, is it, is it actually filtering to the layers it needs to filter to? I don't, I don't, honestly, I, I think, you know, it's, Joseph actually said, you know, what he said, I think is correct. You, you start with what is in your control. So I start with, you know, the people that I work with, the production company that I work with, and, you know, we're having those conversations. Um, and, you know, I, I'm in, thank, you know, 
lucky for me, I'm in a position where I can have those conversations and make impact. You know, at the beginning of my career, I probably wouldn't be comfortable having those, to be honest, like those conversations because I wouldn't, I didn't have the same um, amount of input as I do now and experience. Um, so that's where we're starting, you know, but I think that, um, I, I, yeah, I hope things change. I hope things change, you know, and, and again, on the, on the film side, um, for sure, you know, there, I think there's a lot of issues, um, in the Canadian film industry and, and not, not just Canadian, like in general, the film industry. And I think, you know, we're starting to see some of those changes, but again, the decision makers, um, that does need to change. There needs to be some turnover um, in some of those places to start to um, look at the world in a new way. And I do think like there's all these things that I was kind of told that were just very like, as I was, you know, developing projects and things like that, like you can't make, um, you know, you can't make a urban drama. Like you can't make that film because, you know, no one will want to see it. And, you know, things like that, that, you know, you can't have an, you know, an all black cast. Like that's a very hard thing to, um, to get money and you just won't be able to make that movie. So you're just like, you kind of hear these things, but you, you wonder, and obviously I think this would the case is that there became these rules that, you know, that uh, were set up, but like they weren't, they weren't true. Obviously there's, you know, you know, we've seen it with now, like, um, you know, Black Panther or Moonlight or all these films got made and were successful. But the idea was there was a, there was a, a rule like an open kind of secret in Hollywood that you couldn't do these things that it just didn't, you know, like you couldn't have an Asian man as your leading man in a Hollywood movie, you know? And that's why something like uh, crazy rich Asians like broke that rule, made a ton of money. So it's like, there are all these things set up that were just like people making these assumptions. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing now is the understanding of how that system worked, you know, and it was, and it was, it was working for them. You know, it was working for the system because they were like, you know, they, they got their jobs. They felt like, you know, like these were the hard and fast rules. And I think a lot of them are just waking up to the idea of um, this is no longer the world that, you know, it was for them before. So I think that, that part of it, I think is, is super interesting to be to see it you know and and have allies in it and have people who want to um actually talk about it for people listening to the to the show right now who want to be allies who want to learn more and um you know i, I think it's it's a lot of difficult conversations to be having and uh, a lot of hard mirrors to put up to ourselves do you have any advice for because a lot of our listeners are students they're the, they're the new generation coming up. Uh, do you have any advice for them for how they can begin the process of, of, of stewarding in a, a new way of, of looking and thinking of things? Oh yeah, that's, that's a hard question. Um, I don't, I mean, I wish I knew, I, I wish I knew. Cause I think, um, what's interesting, I guess, to, just for me personally is like, I'm at a point in my career where, you know, what I think I just kind of like put my head down and was like, how to deal with like, was, you know, like there were some, let's say at the very beginning, like very outwardly racist things that I would hear. Really? But like, but like for me, like when I, this is when I'm starting out, like I'm literally, you know, a, like, uh, I was working at a, at an office, like a, 
uh, post-production office. Now, am I like, did I feel like I could say something without, you know, jeopardizing the job that I desperately, like desperately needed at that point? Like, no, like I didn't, like I didn't, I, 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 you know, I didn't feel like it was a safe environment. I wasn't, there's no HR department, you know, there's no one to go to. So, um, for me, like being, you know, uh, you know, whatever, like 23 years old, you know, I just, it's like, okay, this, this happened and I got to deal with it and I got to, and I really need this job. And that's, that's part of it. Um, my hope would be for someone who is, um, in that same position now is that they have, um, they just have more leverage in that situation to understand that they can speak up. And I, and I think what's been really encouraging for me is seeing young people who are like, no, like I'm, I'm not putting my head down. Like I am, I'm standing up. And I think that is very encouraging. And it makes me feel like it makes me feel old in some ways, because I think like, man, like, you know, they, they really look at the world differently you know, than, than I, than I do. And I think, and it's so, um, inspiring to see that, you know, like, I feel like, man, I, I wish I had done more when I was younger to, to stand up for myself and I didn't, but I'm really, um, impressed, you know, with a lot of the young people I meet that are, you know, coming in the industry now. And they're just like, you know, this is, this is how it's going to be, you know? And I think that's, that's really cool to watch. And you know, from from my perspective, I think, you know, one of the things that I realize is that as uh, you know, I'm a I'm a white male, I I just don't understand. Meaning, I could never put myself in the shoes of you know a black a black man who's lived a life of systemic racism from a million different perspectives that he's seen, or a black woman that I have never had to encounter. And so for me, it's like me giving advice to someone coming into the industry for me is like, I'm just, I'm not equipped because I haven't experienced that, you know? And, and so for me, it's been about a, a lot about listening and, and letting, letting, you know, BIPOC community actually lead. Right. I think that's what we need to start doing is it's not just about us, learning it's actually like listening like about really listening you know uh because like look this racism has been around for centuries and centuries and centuries and nothing has been done i think you know this has been an incredibly an incredible point of action for a lot of people and you know my my advice is we can't, and this is not to just people getting into the industry, it's people in the industry, is we can't let this moment go. Like, this is the moment. Like, this is the moment, right? They don't come along. They come along once every 50 years. That's it, right? Where there's the ability for masses of people to come together to, to try to fix things. Just try to fix things, Right? And so for me, the advice to people coming in is don't let this moment slip, you know, like, and, and that's also the advice I give to the people I work with is like, we absolutely have to throw ourselves in, into this with the same kind of passion we would with 
as if our lives depended on it. Cause it really does. I mean, like when you look at, you know, what is going to make us a success as a company, it's going to be a company that has a culture that welcomes everyone. Right. So, you know, to Huber's point, what does it matter if we hire 20 young people that have, you know, a wide range of diversity, if we haven't created role models leading our company that truly are leaders in, in the, the success and the vision of what we're doing as an agency so that they can see a path forward to that. There is no path forward to them if you hire, you know, 20 people and they don't see a single person who's an owner or a manager or and a leader to show them that's possible, right? And so that is the, that's the, the hard thing. It's, it's the turnover that Hubert was talking about, right? Like people are rooted in these positions for decades at a time. Uh, I think we see that as an industry. People are in their positions for decades, literally. Um, you know, it's a very small community. We all know one another. We've all known one another for 15 or 20 years. And so that system is, is a really hard thing to turn over. Um, and it requires a lot of work and passion and a lot of education and a lot of, um, like, you know, being open to like expressing your fear about, about all of this. Cause I think that is the, the, one of the themes that we've seen is how, how afraid people are, you know, how free people are to speak up when they feel like, uh, when they sort of not feel like when they have been, um, you know, um, the victims of a of racist incident, like that kind of fear, we just have to do something to make it go away so that that young person or that woman, or they feel like in the moment they can say, actually, that's not, that's not fine at all. And that needs to change. Like we, we need more of those moments to happen. Um, and the only way that happens is if you have senior level people who are those decision makers that what Huber's talking about that allow for that to happen, right? Because otherwise things just get shut down. We all, we all, we all know that's how systemic racism works. But we're at a point where I think there's the will as a society to do something about this. And we just can't let that go right now. So guys, before I transition into your episode, which is so beautiful and I'm so excited to share it, do you have any, any final thoughts? You know, the one thing that I'm, I have to say I'm excited about is the idea of um, like authenticity and being able to be your authentic self. I think that's, you know, a lot of the work and that Joseph and I have talked about and, and worked on, I think like at its really core, like that's the, that's the kind of messaging that, you know, like we believe in. And I think, you know, um, you know, we're both um, outsiders in a way, you know, I think, you know, uh, for me, from, from my background, you know, uh, you know, um, growing, growing up in Vancouver, you know, with, you know, a black father, white mother, and, and, and that idea of, um, not always fitting in. And I, I would imagine, um, Joseph has a similar, um, probably experience and background. I think that's kind of at the heart of it for me is at a very personal level is, 
um, how do we how do we make people feel included that haven't felt included before? And how do we help to share those stories? And I think um, this is like the most exciting time for me because I think we're going to get an opportunity to do more and more of that. And I, um, and you know, for, for me, that's just like such a positive and that's like a real, um, that feels like it, it like opens my heart in some ways. Cause I'm like, wow, like this is, this is, you know, this is happening and we're going to get more of an opportunity to do it. So yeah, like Joseph said, I mean, this is, this is the time and that's, um, that's exciting, you know, for me. And I, and I think, um, yeah, it's like all, all the stuff that has happened, you know, before and, you know, with our, our last interview before all this shit happened, um, I didn't think we'd be having this conversation. So I'm, I'm very happy it's happening. And from, from my perspective, I think, you know, I've, gone through this transition from being really nervous that I'm getting everything wrong to being really excited to try to get it right. And I think that uh, transition is kind of important for people to make. Um, I think mistakes are going to be made along the way. And, um, and I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I think there's also got to be that, that, passion and that energy that I'm talking about, like it's going to last for decades. Like, like that's the reality, like the energy behind black lives matter has to be almost eternal in order to re undo the systemic change that is everywhere that we see. And, you know, I mean, I get, I get motivated by, um, really hard things to achieve. Um, that's sort of always been sort of the way I've operated in my career. And, you know, um, and this is a really hard thing for us to achieve. And so I, I think we should be excited about that and not um, put off by that. Um, and every, mo every moment's going to count, you know? And so in the way we tackle things that we're passionate about and we don't let a moment go to waste pushing the ball forward, I think that's, what needs to happen. It's just that constant drive and momentum, right? Because that, that's what makes it happen in the end. It's that momentum and that never forgetting that like, it's, it's a process that's just started and probably is never going to end. Well, Hubert and Joseph, uh, thank you both so much for coming back, for giving us your time again. Uh, and, and this was a really special conversation. So thank you guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. And now, without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Created, recorded back in March 2020. Uh, it's incredibly powerful. It's super heartwarming. You will really, really enjoy it. Here you go. Welcome to Created, the Advertising and Design Club of Canada podcast that goes behind the scenes to find out how some of the best campaigns in Canada got made. Theme music and recording studio Care of Grace and Music. And I'm your host, Loranda Martin-Evans. On today's show, we're talking to Joseph Benici, partner and ECD at Ben Simon Byrne, One Method and Narrative, and Academy Award-nominated director Hubert Davis. They're going to talk to us about their unique creative partnership starting with the beautiful documentary for Casey House called June's HIV Positive Eatery. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. 
Thanks for having us. Yeah. So thanks. this is such a unique combo because we've had writer, art director partnerships on the show before, but you have a creative partnership that is creative director and director, director, film director. Mm. So let's take us back to how this partnership began because you guys have kind of been working together for the last 10 years, you just figured out. Happy anniversary. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah I appreciate it's like that. A good 11 year, good 11 year run we've had Aww. in our relationship. Yeah, totally. Beautiful. Yeah, it's been, it's been good. We actually met on a jury. That's how we met. We met on a jury. Of and, crime? Uh, <laughs> yes. And uh, they were all guilty. Double homicide. <laughs> double homicide. Casual double homicide. Double homicide. It was for, it was for the Bessies? Is that it's what the it was? Uh, yeah. R.I.P. Bessies. Yeah, I, know. Yeah. I know. That shows you how long uh, we've known each other. Yeah, that exactly. That there was an award show that no longer exists. But we were on the jury and then we were at opposite ends of the table. Yeah. And then there was, you know, all this work being talked about and then... I think what happened is we kind of started talking at the end. I feel like it was the very end of those two days. And it was kind of like, okay. And then we were both deciding whether or not to go to one of those dinners that they have after, which are always like, for me, like one of my, you know, worst things is these like social interactions after it's like, you know, you're supposed to be schmoozing or something. Right. And I just ended up and I brought my wife and, uh, Kelly and, and Joseph brought Bryden, his partner. And we, Ended up sitting at one end of the table, and then we just basically talked, the four of us, the entire night, and ignored everyone else at the table. It was just magic yeah. formed. Well, it was crazy because at our side of the table, there was rip-roaring laughter <laughs> and drinks being spilled, and we were all smashed, and it was actually kind of a quiet dinner. <laughs> it was like an intimate, quiet dinner in a wine cellar at, uh, is it Kiado? Yeah, that's right. On uh, Dundas, and at the art end of the table, it's like, uh, it's like a fucking rave. <laughs> What? I want to go to dinner with you guys. There was no was awkward fun. moments. Yeah, no. that's and that's the thing is both my wife and and Bryden were like they didn't want to go. They were like, oh god, this is gonna be terrible. You know, we won't know anyone, and it'll just be these awkward moments. But you know, that's that's kind of how it all started in a and, weird way. And then we both went through this awkward phase. Both as individual couples, were like, we really want to be friends with that couple, <laughs> but would it be stalkerish to? <laughs> Like, like how do we form like this? Yeah, yeah like reach out and say yeah. can we just be your new best friends <laughs> but, but it worked because you're also like it gets to a point where you feel like you're too old to do that do you yeah, know what i mean like totally. are we too old to make new friends <laughs> like is this kind of past and then and then we just we just went for we it. just went for it we, we did for it. went yeah. for it yeah so it began as a very honest friendship you were doing yeah. you were doing the jury together and then you became friends um how how does this come to a creative collaborative partnership God, I, I don't know quite what the first project was. I know that the way we started working together, which I, th- I think is fairly unique, started really with, I think, June's mm-hmm. and, and that documentary. And, you know, just going back a little bit about, about June's, it was for Casey House, which is, you know, a part of our agency's culture. And we were working with the CEO of the hospital to really really sort of create a campaign about an issue that no one gives a shit about. So right? what is what is Casey House? So Casey House is the world's largest purpose-built uh, HIV and AIDS hospital, and it is the world's global leader in medical care for those with HIV. And so when we were talking to the CEO, Joanne Simons, who's probably one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met, um, you know, I, I asked her, what are your goals for the hospital? And she said, well, to be the best caregiver in the world in terms of, you know, medical and mental health for those with HIV and AIDS, uh, and secondly, to help fight stigma. And so during the course of this conversation, I just asked her a question. I said, well, 
your goal on one side is to be the world's best um, hospital, essentially, for HIV and AIDS. And you've reached this with this building. They are literally the best hospital in the world for HIV patients. Um, I said, why don't you want to be the world's leader in fighting stigma? And she said, well, we do, but we just don't have the money. And I said, well, all things aside, is that a goal that you guys would want? And she was like, well, absolutely, that's that's our goal. And that's kind of how it all started. Um, so I think then we were working on what the campaign was going to be for that year. And we decided to do a restaurant where all the chefs were HIV positive. And the reason why we did this was because we did all these interviews with people um, who are clients of Casey House. And they said things to us like they stopped cooking for all their friends because they were afraid that if they continued to cook and their friends uh, found out eventually that they were HIV positive, that um, they would be upset at them because they thought that they had put them in danger. So the stigma is just so brutal and internalized, and it really leads to this sort of total isolation. Um so that's how uh, the creative team, David Mueller and Carly Wallette, came up with this idea of, let's just do a restaurant and we'll train all the chefs and they'll do like, you know, a five-star meal um, and we'll prove that, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of and let's challenge people with their greatest fears. Um, and then we said, well, we really have to make a story of this as we sort of met some of these people. And that's how I started talking to Hubert about, that 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 documentary project in particular, but June's was a real restaurant. Oh yeah, you really yeah. did it. it. You trained it was full on non chefs. Was full on. Yeah, I mean it was a hundred and twenty five diners a night. It was a family style three course meal, um, and it was uh, fully put on by those HIV positive chefs who had to train go through a series of training with uh, Matt Basili, who's one of the best chefs here in Canada, an amazing supporter of Casey House as well. So they had like, you know, the ultimate chef train them in the Casey House kitchen. And then they had to actually run the kitchen and put on a meal and and, and serve 125 like pretty demanding people, <laughs> you know, like uh, donors, uh, influencers, the media, um, you know, and uh, it was intense. It was intense. How, how did you convince the before we get to the film, yeah. how did you convince the client? Let's because opening a restaurant is in itself a huge ordeal, and not only mm. that, you don't have trained chefs. You had to train people to be chefs. How did that process unfold? Uh, it was a frightening process. Right. Yeah, the whole thing every year uh, it shaves the years off my life. Um, I would say um, it's you know what I think. You have uh, the clients of uh, of Casey House when we sort of talked to them about the the idea. The first thing actually that was more scary about the idea was putting these fourteen or fifteen people in the in front of uh, a very afraid public, mm -hmm. and you know that that restaurant got fourteen thousand hate comments globally. Really, fourteen thousand, and we knew that was going to happen. Um, so. You know, the human risk involved to us was the, our primary concern, not the restaurant risk. It was, you know, the risk of having these people having to go online and read these terribly misinformed, um, ignorant, um, or just trolls, right? There's lots of those people out there um, sort of try to take them down. And so I think that was the first consideration that we had and had to talk through with Casey House. And when we realized that, uh, they were really they they wanted to fight 
right? Like this is a fight for them. Um, that's when we started to worry about the actual restaurant mechanics part of it. And we're lucky that we have a PR division called Narrative and they do experiences very well. And so they had a lot of experience with restaurants. So they were able to sort of help um, the agency really and the hospital really form what that hospital, what, sorry, what those what that restaurant would look like and what the experience was going to look like and get a chef on board and all those sorts of things. From doing a sort of like like a, when a beer does a pop-up restaurant made with a beer, like that exactly. kind of experience. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but this was sort of just a much more intense version of that. Right. And then how did you vet the people who would become chefs? Uh, well, essentially, I mean, it was Casey House who vetted the people, right? So it was people willing to be very public about disclosing their status. And that's a huge thing. The majority of people don't disclose their status if they're HIV positive because of the stigma involved around the disease. So we're asking people to disclose their status. And we didn't we didn't know that um, there were going to be 600 stories worldwide and People Magazine and BBC would do several stories. And that wow. they were, like it was intense for these people to be in front of the camera telling their stories. Because um, you thought, oh, we'll get national press, I'm sure. Like, oh, the Globe I'm, and Mail or... I mean, I, I don't th- think we even assumed that. I think we just assumed we wanted to get the story out on on a local level and, you know, certainly sort of see if there's pickup nationally. And then I think we kind of knew we had a media day prior to opening for the three days. And uh, like we had a hundred, a hundred media and influencers show up. It was crazy. Um, and so we had to actually set a separate day just for the media so that they didn't take up the seats of the people, you know, who, who were going to be the next three days, the public. Um, so I think we were new, we knew we were onto something in those three days. And then just the, the calls just kept, kept coming, you know, and, People just kept asking the most ignorant questions, even the media, you know, like, um, so how did you get um, approval from, you know, Toronto Public Health and Safety? We don't need approval from Toronto Public Health and Safety. They can't transmit through food um, or food preparation. So it was so interesting to even see the media. We sent the media soup that as an invite that the chefs had cooked. Most media probably didn't take that soup home and eat it. You know, it was a wonderful butternut Thai squash soup, by <laughs> the way. <laughs> it was delish. I, I had several jars of it. Yeah. So was it the, the restaurant opening that caused the global media frenzy or was it the film that was created or was it a combination of both? It's a combination of both. So how did it yeah. unfold and where does Hubert play into this? And you I, had, you had the, the restaurant and then there was the film. Yeah. And I, I think the, the film was, yeah, was just a part of that process because obviously you had, you had the print uh, campaign, which again is putting them out there as far as, you know, the, the participants, uh, in it, the, the film was really just to kind of, um, you know, for me, it was just to put a face on it. It's to get into the story so that you get that personal element of, of the different people who are going through. Um, and you know, the best part about it, I think there was a lot of, uh, freedom, in that, in what we were allowed to do. And Joseph, you know, I think that's kind of when we say that was like, you know, for us, the start, it was basically, it was like, okay, this is what we want to do, you know? And, but you kind of have freedom in how to do that. And so that's kind of continued, I think, throughout, you know, the other work that we've done together. But that was like the beginning of, okay, like what, what could this be? You know, there's obviously limited resources. It's not like, you know, and time we didn't have, it's not like we had, um, 
you know, usually for documentaries, you know, you've got lots and lots of time and that research and everything that goes in. But this was more like hit the ground running. Okay, we want to cover this. We want to talk to the people. And, you know, for me, that's always the most interesting part of any issue is like what's going on beneath that issue. Like what what are those people facing on a daily basis? What are their, some of their worst stories? What are some of their best stories of going through this process? Um so for me, it was, it was really interesting. Like it was really, um, eye opening in a way because there, there was a lot of negativity, I think, as far as like, let's say, you know, uh, the internet and, you know, just people's responses. But ultimately what I felt like over the nights, it was actually quite a positive experience for them because it was this sense of, um, they were the stars. They were the stars of the show. They were the people that everyone wanted to talk to all the outlets and they're on these, you know, big, bold, you know, print campaigns. And it felt like um, they were empowered through that process. Um, and those are people who have been, uh, you know, who are, you know, some of the stories are pretty horrible as far as, you know, how other people have treated them or in their social networks and all those things. So it, for me, it was such a positive emotional experience because you got that feeling like, oh, they're, they're getting something that is out of this and it's also helping other people. And how is your, you mentioned the, the documentary process mm-hmm. and we mentioned at the top of the show, you were actually nominated for an Academy Award for a documentary piece. Yeah, for sure. Can you just briefly tell us that story? And I'm then I'll getting... segue back into Casey House because it's so fascinating yeah. to me that you are also a, you're a film director, you're a documentary maker and you're a commercial director. Yeah. Um, and you and Joseph have done more traditional brand film commercial pieces but this Casey House piece was a documentary a passion piece so if we could just go back in time for a quick second how did that happen how did you become nominated for an Academy Award so it was actually it's it's funny how these things work because I think um it's often actually it's always personal projects um that you are passionate about things that you are doing um it's not really for any other reason than you just want to do it um, and that was, you know, my first, first film was, was hard, was called hardwood. Uh, and it was about my family, uh, it was about my dad who used to play for the Harlem Globetrotters. That was kind of the hook in to get the, the financing to, to make it. And by financing, I mean like literally it was like $70,000 wow. that took like four years to, to raise. Um, so I never, you know, made a film before that I was, I was a assistant editor and then an editor. So I was trying to, you know, put together the money and like, little bits at a time, like literally like I got a check for like $5,000. I like went out to celebrate. I was like, yeah, you've done it. Um, and because, so you're working as an editor at the time, that's right. but your true passion is filmmaking. Correct. But you can kind of do it all. Well, you, you know, the editing was for me was a really good way to learn the skill of directing, you know, from seeing what other directors would do, how we'd put together stories, you know, what was working, what wasn't working. Uh, seeing, you know, a lot of DPs work, directors of photography and seeing, you know, what they brought to the table or sometimes didn't bring to the table. Uh, and so that really informed me on the process of, okay, if I was making my own film, this is how I would do it. And also I think like as a director, your strongest thing that you have is a, a point of view and seeing different directors work. Some, you just didn't feel like there was a kind of a through line and other ones you did. And then just trying to figure out like what was my um, point of view, what was my creative input that I wanted or you want to stamp on it, I guess. Something that, you know, is like the way that you kind of see the world. Um, so so with Hardwood, 
basically, you know, we made it kind of on a, uh, you know, taking time off from work, you know, going to shoot in Vancouver when shot in Chicago again, not a ton of time. And then we started doing the festival circuit and started getting in different festival, got in Hot Docs as the premiere. And did you edit this film as well? I did. Yeah. So I you shot, directed it, shot it, edited it. I know I didn't shoot it. I actually, uh, David Tennant, who's a director, uh, he shot it for me. He's a, a brilliant Irish guy. And he, uh, I asked him his opinion because he's a director. And I said, you know, I really liked his work. And I said, you know, what DP would you recommend to shoot it? And he goes, ah, oh, they're all shite. You know, and I was like, okay, well, would you, would you shoot it for me? And I think he didn't take me seriously when I first asked him. But then when we finally got the money, I was like, okay, will you shoot it? And he was like, yes. And he was a big part of that process for me too, creatively, you know, talking about, things and shots and again I think because I gave him freedom and he was used to you know shooting a lot of commercials where you know for if you're shooting something for RBC it's not like you can just do whatever you want right and I think he appreciated that creative freedom uh and really enjoyed that process and we had a good collaboration on on making it um but yeah so I edited it on the you know nights weekends you know while I was working and once it was done yeah then it started the festival circuit and then once it started like getting some momentum, uh, the distributor is the National Film Board. Uh, someone in the U.S. office said, "Oh, I think this has a good chance to be nominated for short documentary, which is the category. It's the category that you always get wrong in your Oscar pool because right. you've never seen any of them." I hope you bid on yourself <laughs> what, in <Yeah>. your Oscar <laughs> pool. But uh, so basically, that process then is you submit, but you have to you have to have won a certain award at a certain festival or uh, get into a certain, um, there's a group of films that get, uh, they call it four walling, which mean, means it was like in a theatrical um, run in four different cities like LA, New York, and then two others. And they have to play in that, those cities for like a week. Uh, so it's a bit of a process. There's, it's not like you just kind of like, you know, they call you up and they're like, you're nominated. You're like, wow, I'm so surprised. It's like, there's like steps along the way. And each one, I would kind of be like, well, that'd be cool. Like if we got in this, that would be great. And then you get in that festival and then it's like, oh, okay. So now, uh, and then eventually what happens is uh, there's a short list and that short list, uh, you, you find out about it, even though it's not uh, for the public. And that short list was like eight films. So you find out you get shortlisted, but you don't know if you're nominated because they only nominate five films out of the eight. Which is kind of the worst process yeah, because so yeah. three of you don't not get it. Gonna get there exactly, yeah. and then you're like, "Oh, I was shortlisted," and everyone's like, "Sure you were." Yeah, exactly. You know, like exactly. you, it's like you almost got there. It's bizarre. Yeah. So, but I, you do get there. Yeah. So I'm waiting, like, so I'm anxiously waiting for the actual uh, nominations to come out, which you know came out like whatever, like five in the morning or something. And so you just get up and you kind of wait. And then I was just looking online. Like I just had to wait and look online and, and then it showed up. And then I, I love the idea out. of Hubert waiting to hear if he got nominated for an Oscar and like the same, you know, and Charlize Theron is doing the same <laughs> right? and, you know, like Brad Pitt's hoping, but didn't get it that year. And which is the bullshit thing <laughs> when you hear people say, Oh, I, I don't know. I was just, you know, doing something. And then they called and told me it's like, you know, like you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if, if you're, unless you're, I don't know, you've been nominated like 15 times, I'm pretty sure like you're there and someone, your publicist or whoever is yeah. like, Hey, you know, they got a good chance or whatever. Cause there's a whole campaign, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's people behind the scenes who have to push those films forward 
to try and even get nominated. Like it's, you know what I mean? It is a process. So, um, I will say though, I think Meryl Streep probably sleeps in on Oscar day. <laughs> she, she just like, does she's at like, this oh, point. whatever. Like I'm having pancakes at 8am and I'm not waking up. So she's still, early. she's still thinking about it though. <laughs> she's still like at the gym. She's like, oh, I wonder, did I get snubbed? And then, they'll, cause then it's like, yeah, did you make, I don't know. So do you get nominated and then go back to editing that Cheerios commercial you were doing? Like, did Yeah, like literally that same day, I think I went back in and I was working on something. <laughs> that week I was cutting something and it wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't Cheerios, but it was the equivalent of that, like something in that. And I remember the team kind of being like, this is weird, you know, like, you know, like kind of here, here we go. You know, it was just, yeah. there was less... Um, I think there was that whole year, probably, uh, after the nomination, there was a weird process where I hadn't left to start directing full-time, but I was still editing, but maybe my heart wasn't fully in it. Right. You know, like, you're kind of like, you're kind of like, yeah, yeah. And it, I loved editing. Like, I think it's a, it's a great craft. I think it's a great, uh, it was a great job. I worked very hard to become an editor, but yeah, it's just, it's not your passion, I think, once you kind of have the opportunity to do what you really want to do. And so, clearly with a passion for documentary filmmaking as well as commercial filmmaking, when it came to this first collaboration that you guys did on Casey House, mm -hmm. when did you bring Hubert into your process? So as part of the process, we did about 30 interviews with um, you know clients of Casey House and, and people there. And talking to people, uh, I just went, these stories have to be told. And knowing that they were going to be chefs and they were going to be, you know, literally slaving over, you know, a meal for three or four straight days uh, for that pop-up. Um, they actually weren't going to have a chance to tell those stories, not like in a fulsome, in a fulsome, rich way. And and so that's kind of when I called Hubert and I'm like, I think you just need to talk to some of these people. And that's how it started. It wasn't like I, we want to shoot a documentary. It was, is there anything here that you think is... Uh, going to be special um, and, and going to be a, a really beautiful piece that, you know, will show people a perspective they haven't heard before. And because that's what I was hearing in my head when I was talking to all these people. And like, ultimately, there's so much more than those three letters, HIV. And and I thought that the documentary could could really present that side to them. You know, and because for those f those four nights, they were like 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 Hubert said, rock star chefs. You know, and um, but they weren't getting a chance to tell that story. So I, I I basically just said, just chat with them. I think, and then yeah. we set up some calls through Casey House with um, with Hubert and and the, and yeah. the chefs to just like talk. And I, and I went to Casey House. Remember that was an early thing that you set up to meet Joanne and go to Casey sure. House. Which, again, is, like, really important part of the process because you kind of see, like, they talk so passionately, Joanne, especially, about the work that they do. And so then your art, I think, Joseph is is a master manipulator, by the way, if you don't know yeah. that. So he, he <laughs> set me up for that meeting, and then he knew I was going to be in because once I met Joanne, I was like, oh, my God, okay, yes, we this is the work. This is what we have to do. So... I like from that point on, I was like, okay, I knew it was like, okay, this is really important. Um, 
and and then you have the the personal you know you don't want to you don't want to let them down you don't want to let Joanne down I think that's you know you have you have something at stake at that point which is always um, important I think and what's your process between the commercial shoots but this this is this is really a documentary shoot yeah how how do you map that out how do you plan that together it's different like documentaries um, the great part of about them is you don't know what's going to happen and that's also as a director it's actually the worst part about them is because for directors basically what you want is control is a sense of control and making decisions and those decisions really come through the edit of the piece not of of the shooting um so i actually have a bit of a love hate relationship with documentaries because i although that's you know that was my first film and there's and i've i've done quite a lot of that work there is a um, a frustration with it, uh, because you are limited with, uh, with what you have. Um, but like for something like that, I think what it really, we're trying to kind of boil it down to at its essence, what it was about. Um, and what was the idea of cooking about? Like, why was, why did they choose that as, um, as this kind of like outlet for them to do. And, and cooking is very personal. It's like the idea of like cooking a meal for someone is very, uh, you know, that's, that's love. That means like, I care about you. If I'm, I'm inviting you over to dinner, I'm going to prepare food for you. And so that kind of became the, um, the visual hook for me to get into was the idea of, of food and preparation and what that meant. And that meant love and that, that's really what they were looking for is like, that was the worst part for most of them that they talked about is just feeling like being shut down by someone. Like, let's say you are trying to start a relationship, whether that's a friendship or, you know, a sexual relationship and, you know, confiding in them that you have HIV and then them just never responding to you ever again. And things like stories like that, um, I thought that was kind of like the hook for me, like the emotional hook is like, they're just, you know, searching for that, for acceptance, for love, for kind of being seen for who they are. So you get the restaurant up on its feet, you get the people trained as chefs, you get the menu mapped out, you're shooting this film. um, It all comes together and immediately there's negative. I I assume there's also very positive press, but the negative press that you were sort of prepared for the press was positive. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, the press was 100% positive because they were on our side of, of trying to, you know, they're all about the facts, right? And they understand the science behind, you know, transmission. And so what was interesting, though, was that, you know, when we did a survey, we always root every year's campaign around a shocking survey about Canadians' attitudes. And 51% of Canadians would refuse a meal from someone who's HIV positive. And this is through a scientific poll that we did from across the country. And I think we think of ourselves as this incredibly progressive, we know everything in Canada, we just, you know, we've had gay marriage longer than anyone, and we've done this before anyone, and no, like half the population would be like, screw you, I'm not eating that meal, You're, it's tainted with HIV. And so that was the attitude that we heard um, online um, from thousands of Canadians, thousands of people globally, who are just like, who is even letting you do this? You know, it's disgusting. And where are they commenting on these things? Like on the film that's uploaded online? No, well, or? both. Um, the film came after, actually, the docu- uh, the actual restaurant, about four months after the actual restaurant. I think we premiered in April. The restaurant was December 1, around there, those few days. And um, 
so there was just a, uh, you know, we were monitoring the social media and Casey, the part of this actually was to get those trolls out saying those ignorant things so that we could then step in with the, the facts and correct people. Right. And we also created a bunch of advocates. Like sometimes people's friends would go, that is so ignorant. Like, how, like, don't you know that it can't be transmitted through, through food? So it created a bunch of advocates as well, which was, which was a great sign and what we were hoping to do. But I, th I think, you know, part of the campaign, unfortunately, is drawing out these people who are ignorant so that you can show them, you know, like how, how deeply flawed their thinking is around really any, anything around this issue. Um, the film itself actually had a pretty universally positive, um, you know, positive response. I think when we were, we did this premiere for it and, you know, we had about 250 people fill the theater and we had a panel afterwards with some of the people featured in the documentary. And we had some media people there. And through that, we got a contact into uh, HBO. And so um, we ended up having a call like shortly after the premiere with this person from HBO. And they were like, we would like to make this a centerpiece of our LGBTQT programming this year. So would, would, can we acquire this documentary? And we were like, that's phenomenal, right? Because our, our whole issue with the documentary is how do we get this out there? You know, and we had planned maybe I'm trying to get into hot docs and we were going to do the festival. We we're going to do all of that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately what we decided to do is we needed to go for the biggest audience that we could get this documentary. And HBO as a platform is the ultimate, I think, platform Absolutely. for something like this. Yeah. So when they um, asked us for the documentary, we were like a hundred percent, and it's it's aired continuously really since, um, I want to say June of starting with Pride in two thousand and eighteen. It would have been yeah two thousand eighteen. So, yeah, which that's is, so cool. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like I've never you know I've never had anything even remotely near HBO before. Right, that's, so. that's so crazy, <laughs> and that they called you. Yeah from the press that you were getting in this yeah. this positive yeah, outpouring. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, a, a contact who was there and they saw it and they were like, this is amazing. And they then they called someone else. It's like one of those perfect stories, right? And then we get this call saying they're interested and, um, you know, and then I remember calling Hubert saying, you know, I think we've got HBO for this documentary. Um, and he was like, I don't think I've been on HBO before. <laughs> and I was like, well, I... I <laughs> It was never in my wildest imagination in my yeah. entire life I'd be on HBO. So, yeah. Um, and that's kind of like how it works, though. I think, you know, kind of getting back to the idea of these passion projects yeah. is if you go in with the intent of you just need to make it, like it, that's, that's kind of how I felt like it just need, needed to be made, then it will find its way. But I think when you, you kind of like try to reverse engineer something, then that's what doesn't work. Right, you know if you were I mean? going to say, let's make a show that HBO is going to pick exactly. up, you'd sure. never get there. Exactly. 100%. Yeah. It was about following your heart and the truth of the story. Yeah, and yeah. telling great stories of amazing people, you know? And ultimately, I think that's why the documentary was so successful, is it really captured a side to these people that no one will ever get to see or hear. Because, you know, um, again, most of the time they're shut down, and most of the time no one wants to hear their story, you know? Because there's blame around HIV, right? So you get cancer, people go, 
oh my God, what could I do? There's such empathy around the disease. You know, almost any disease you can put into that category. The difference with HIV is uh, there are a series of mental questions that happen when uh, someone tells you they've been diagnosed. Mm. Um, you know, there's blame around the disease, right? So the questions are, are you a drug user? Are you, um, uh, what's the word? Um, basically, the disease happened because you didn't take the necessary precautions and let this happen to you. So you deserve it. You know, are you promiscuous? Right. You know, drug user, like those are the sorts of things get, that get associated with HIV. So, um, and it's one of the few diseases that has that much blame attached to it. And and so I think also we wanted to get across the story that there, there's a reason why people get HIV. And it's because oftentimes they're so stigmatized by seven other things before they even have it. There's racism involved. There's mental health issues sometimes. There's addiction issues. And this is all before they get diagnosed, right? And so you have layer upon layer upon layer of stigma. And then they get diagnosed and that's the ultimate, you know? Um, so it, it puts them back into a shell where they, they really have no outlet or anyone to talk to. So how did the campaign affect the Casey House, people living with HIV, the stigma, all the things that, you know, you went in 51% of Canadians, that, yeah. that survey, did it move the needle? It's hard to tell whether it moves the needle. And that's been our big struggle with this, this, this campaign. And to be totally transparent, every year, you know, we have an amazing, we have an amazing reaction from the press and so we know that we're getting our story out the first year was like something like a thousand 500 stories a billion impressions a billion a billion that's impressions. so bananas it's banana it was bananas a billion impressions. we were doing interviews with bbc and people and the guardian um the guardian was like in the print edition on the second page of the london guardian and someone wow. took a picture and sent it to us um so that for us was success because this, the media was reporting on something it had simply stopped reporting about really since the AIDS crisis um, in, the, in the early uh, 80s and into the 90s. But as treatments got better and people were surviving with HIV, the worry over the disease kind of just went away, right? And people stopped talking about it. And so really the whole thing with Casey House is that we need people to start talking about this again because... The same number of people get infected today as they did in the 1980s. Really? It's unbelievable that this is still happening, right? And and again, that's because of a lack of education, a lack of attention on uh, something that, that needs it. And so I, I think for us, moving the needle has been about getting the word out there. Um, you know, we know we've, over the three years, we've educated about 10 million people through social like just through responding to all of these hate comments every year and the conversations that ensue on social. Um, uh, so that's really been how we've been trying to, you know, move the needle. And But every year when we put a poll out, um, it comes back as, you know, the second year when we did Healing House, which was the spa, it was, you know, 50% of Canadians would believe you can get transmitted HIV through touch, you know? And then this year when we did a campaign revolving around sitcoms, uh, 65 million North Americans would rather see their favorite sitcom character die than get diagnosed with HIV. Wow. Like, that's like pure hatred. <laughs> yeah. The fact that they're willing to answer that question that way, I mean, we, we ask these questions to be so provocative, thinking 
well, people have that inside voice, and they might they might not tell the truth, mm. right? And oh, but they have no problem telling the truth when it comes to HIV about how they feel. You know, they have no trouble spewing the ignorance around that disease. And I think that's the difference between this issue and a lot of other, mm. um, you know, uh, a lot of other, uh, you know, medical uh, medical things out there. Is this, um, no one really cares about it anymore. Um, so it's an easy cause to take up because when you meet these people and you realize how isolated they are because of this, it's like, well, we have to tell their story, you know? Well, it's very clear that the, the passion comes from both of you for this, for Casey House. And there's another passion piece that you both collaborated on called Boys Don't Cry. But before we touch on that, mm. can you talk to me about the difference? Because you've also collaborated on more commercial brand story work. Mm. Um, how does that process work? Like, do you bring in Hubert at the end? You've got a script, the client's approved it, and off we go to shoot the boards, or? So it's the opposite, actually. The opposite. I think that's what has made it such a great partnership. So if I know there's something that can use Hubert's magic, I actually take him through it before the client's seen it sometimes um, and say, like, like, is this something you'd want to do? Something you'd want to bring to life? Do you see what I see in this? Like a script or a yeah. brief? or at a, what script. Point? a script. Like a script. It gets to a point where there's, like, something for him to react to. Okay. Right? Um, because I, th- I think it needs to be that a little bit tangible versus kind of like... I mean, with Casey House, it was purely, like, do you want to tell these stories? And he didn't know the stories, but I said to him, there are great stories I think you're going to find. Whereas sort of when we work on brand work and I, and I think we've landed on something that that would be an amazing collaboration, I sort of send it to him kind of like as, as soon as I can, you know, as soon as it's in a form that I think he can respond to and go, I could, I could do something with this. I can, I can work with this. And what that helps in the process and I think why it's unique is because when it's already, let's say, gone through the, the channels, often what I'll hear like as a director is it's like, well, we've sold it this way, mm-hmm. right? Like, like there's already a process that it's like, you don't know how long it's taken to get here. So we can't, like, there's a fear you can't, you can no longer backtrack or rethink things or, and this process is unique in that once you, you're you seeing it from the beginning, from the like formative stage of it, and you can have input or ideas, then, and then it gets sold through to someone. It just makes such a huge difference because you're not then like having to try and it's like uh, often on projects, like they come to you so late that the input you have is actually quite minimal. You know what As I mean? As a director. Yeah. It, uh, for a lot of like, you know, brand stuff is you kind of feel like, Oh, okay. Like, can she be wearing a red shirt? Like, you know, like you're like, uh, you're yeah, like, lit- you're Absolutely. literally like those are the, they're so minimal that really your input as, uh, as a director and having a point of view is, it's it's so uh, ineffective, and I think what is uh, important is getting that early stages where you're kind of seeing the formation of it. And it's it's like I, I view my job is I'm trying to um, visually represent what that idea is. Like, how do we make that idea and translate that into like a cinematic language, right? Mm-hmm. And what often happens, I think, in you know, bad case scenarios is that they've kind of already tried to do that work. It's like the difference I would imagine with like a screenplay, right? Doesn't have camera moves in the screenplay because they want the viewer to read it. And as a reader, we're kind of thinking of it, but then it's really up to the director to then make those choices. 
But if I have something that's already come to me and it's like, no, it's all one shot and it's this and it's that and it's this, then those decisions are kind of taken out of my hands. And really, like, what what is my my job at that point? Like, right. what is my purpose? So I think that this is, yeah, I've been thinking about a lot actually recently of like why this has worked so well and collected. And I think it is that part of the process that it's never too early to start thinking about it or get involved or like, Oh, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? That I think has just been like such a positive thing for, for me as a director and, and unique and it doesn't usually happen. So would you prefer to work with, cause you and Joseph have a friendship, right? So it's cool probably to collaborate together. And would you prefer it if other agency creatives came to you as a director and said, Hey man, we're still early in the process, but uh, absolutely. I want to float this by you. What do you think? Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. I think it would, uh, there'd be so much more interesting work if that were the case, because okay. again, I don't think that that necessarily means that all those projects will get made. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, that's the other or, thing. It's like you put all this input in and then, yeah, oh, maybe sorry, it they go. went with uh, yeah, this but, other way. But that's part of the process anyway. Like for directors, you pitch on things. You don't get 100% of the things that you pitch on. So you're already kind of used to that process, mm-hmm. which is, you know, and I, I think probably from an agency, you're used to the process as well, where you have yeah. lots of things that you're like trying to sell through that don't go through. Um, but for me, the interesting part is the collaboration. Like the interesting part is collaborating on an idea or how to execute it and how we see it. Um, so I don't mind that that might not get made. It you know might feel bad at the time. You're like, oh wow, I wish that would have been really cool. But what I'm interested in is that collaboration and and what what are we trying to say and what's the best way to say it. Because I, it's interesting you brought up the pitch process. I actually the traditional pitch process way feels weird to me. Mm. If you really Super think, weird. right? It's yeah. like it's like you're holding back information. Yes. Yeah. Let's see what they think. And if they think the right thing, we'll hire them. Yes, that's how it feels. You've already decided what to do with the spot or what to do with the film or what to do with the project. And so I'm always super transparent with, with clients about, so this script that, you know, that we all love is going to probably change dramatically because we're going to make it better. Like all together, we're going to make it better. Right. And so, I, I only really engage with Hubert if I know the client is along for that ride, if they're open-minded. Um, because I think that makes a huge difference. You also need clients that are fairly open-minded, right, about that process. And I'm also transparent about, you know, like I'll present a script and I'm like, just so you know, I I, I think there's one director who should do this. It's Hubert Davis. I'm transparent about the fact that he's a good friend of mine. But what's interesting about our working style is that there's work and then there's friends yeah. drunk we, on the end of the table time <laughs> exactly. yeah like we just do not mix the two like honestly right. we flip back and forth um seamlessly so that when we're working together because like you know we're not always going to see things 100 percent eye to eye the thing that i that i th- think i'm good at though is giving a lot of freedom because i i, I can't do what he does you know and i look at what he does on set I look at how he gets performances out of people that I just didn't think would happen when I'm in the casting. And I've seen him do it so many times over and over and over again that like I just have total trust in him. And so for me, that's a, that's a, that's a big thing. Like I, I can't do what he does. So that means I have to give 
him the freedom to do that. And I, th- I think I have that attitude with a lot of directors. Like, unless I realize I've hired the wrong director on a project, and then I'm like, oh my god, I'm directing this. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think that's pretty rare. I, th- I think if you, you know, if you, if it's a, if it's a good process, you end up with a good director, right? And I think, um, you know, not everyone is able to work. I think the way we are certainly. Yeah. It's, it's unique too, because I wonder, like for me, I'm always wondering the psychology of people who aren't able to work that way is that, because it is, it is trust for sure. It's like, okay, I trust you and empower you to, to make this. And by giving that over to me, then I feel there is a real responsibility, you know, and I, I think about it a lot and try and come at it from different ways. But I'm always like curious, did other, like other people who don't work that way and who do feel like they kind of need to do my job for me or, right. or like, cause I'm sure you've worked with those people. We don't need oh, yeah. names here, but I'm yeah. sure you've, sh- I've got a list I'll share with yeah. you after, but, um, <laughs> the black, yeah. Like the but, band yes. yeah. but <laughs> I often wonder, was that, um, was that an experience that went bad? Like you're saying, like, did they work with a director early on who they were like, Oh, sh- this is not working shit. Like I'm in trouble. And so they kind of like, started the process of, of never fully trusting directors again. Like mm-hmm. I, I wonder, you know, it was like a bad relationship or something because like I'm only here to help, right? Like, I, you know, like I'm only giving uh, like advice over like, I think we should do this. I think we, because I know the, the confines of like our day and what we need to get. And also like what I think is going to work the best. And that's, you know, that's why you bring me on because uh, that's my experience of, and I couldn't do what you do, you know, like I couldn't then go in and, you know, sell that to the client. I couldn't, you know, do all those things. You know, I couldn't really come up with the creative idea of, of what you're trying to communicate. I can only take that idea and then translate that. So I'm often confused about that kind of, um, friction, I guess that happens sometimes where, someone in a creative position, you know, an agency feels like they have to try and retain control. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which is it, like, we're all in it together. So just, you know, just trust that let's talk about it and let's, but just try and let me do my thing. You know what I mean? And you, if you, if you don't, if you're, if you try and micromanage every single moment of that shoot and that process, what do you need me for? Like, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like what, why am I actually there? If, if you're just using me as like the person to, you know, am I just the one to yell action and cut, right. you know, at that point, like, yep. is that, <laughs> if, yeah. if we have to have a conversation about every single decision, every single thing that I'm shooting, then I just, I feel like that's, you know, not the best use of, of resources. So I think too, when clients get to set and we turn to them and what do you think? What do you think? Like how, for the clients listening to the show, how can they be a part of the magic on set and really help bring the best performances and best pieces to life? I mean, I think for me, like I work best when people are just talking about what the overall objective is, not how to do it, like not how to execute. I think that's where people get confused. Like, what are we trying to say? Like, what is, what is my brand about? And what am I trying to communicate? Is this supposed to be uh, is this supposed to be emotional? Is this supposed to be uh, lighthearted? Is this supposed to be heavy-handed? Like, what what does our brand represent, and what are we trying to say with the piece of creative that we're trying to get across, and what are we trying to get people to feel? 
those bigger terms, like I, I don't know that I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't, um, know your brand as well as you do. So it's those bigger things that I think that people need to talk about, not the minutia of how to do it. Like I always find it interesting in meetings, like the idea that the things that people get hung up on, like, let's say it's a, I don't know, let's say it's a car commercial and we, you know, talk about everything, but then, you know, the client gets hung up on like what color jacket someone's wearing. It's like, what does the jacket have to do with your car or what you're trying to say mm-hmm. about your pro- do you know what I mean like even I find wardrobe a little bit weird like do you like what <laughs> yeah, she's I'm like right. I am I putting I my go. own personal biases here I don't know I haven't been to a wardrobe in years okay. I just I can't do it it's, I can't yeah. discuss what gap sweater <laughs> someone is going to wear because it's like I mean people are going to look like people right and so it's it's usually the safe stuff, and so yeah. I refuse to go to any wardrobes, right? And so I haven't been to one in years because I just it was sucking the life out of me I, as I, a human being, <laughs> and I was like, this is not my job. It's not my yeah. my job is actually to not worry about what a clothes wear, what what clothes an actor wears. Like I, so it's in, interesting. In, like unless I, it was for uh, like it was a fashion thing, right? right? Yes. Like that, but that's the irony is like people get hung up on things that have nothing to do with what you're there to sell or get across. But are we asking for too many approvals then? Yes. We, uh, yes. A hundred percent. The process has become uh, where they're not sure what to respond to. I think sometimes, I think sometimes I don't know what, what gap sweater to respond yeah. to. Yeah. But also like the process of, you don't need to worry about this. Like this isn't important in the process. There are other things that are very important in the process. Uh, but this isn't one of them. I think that sometimes doesn't get maybe communicated. So should we be asking for less approvals on things? Should we be working together with more trust? I, I I mean I would say you'd get better work out of out of doing it that way, and I don't think it means um, like trust doesn't mean like carte blanche like you know I'm going to do whatever I want. It's more like um, here are the conversations that we need to have, and then here is where like I think I can say oh this is where I would need freedom in this this thing. Mm-hmm. You know like let's not micromanage this uh, particular thing, but like let's have a little bit more freedom in the way that I'm going to shoot this scene. Like I, and the thing as a director is like, I might not know, like I might not know going into this particular scene, what's going to work and what's not going to work. So what I don't like is like promising something. Like, let's say you and I have a discussion. We say, okay, this is how I'm going to shoot it. And I get in there and it's not working. And I have to pivot out of that and try something else. Cause that's really like fundamentally the, I think your job, you know, as a director is to be able to roll with things. Okay, this didn't work, but let's try this. And you're just trying to find those, that magic in it. But if I have already promised you, I'm going to do this and this is going to work, then it starts to, we start to struggle with that because it's like, well, we said it was going to be this way. You know, this is on the board and we said it was going to be exactly this. And it's not that. And then if we just keep trying to do that 20 times Mm -hmm. and it's never working, it doesn't allow you the freedom to then switch things up. Like I feel like when I'm on set with Hubert, we're shooting something that my job is actually to protect his day. Oh, I love that. Right. So that's fully my job. And so I'm very rarely beside him. I say, I go to the creative team, creative team, you go hang out with Hubert. I'm going to sit with the clients all day and address any concerns that they have. Cause I do not want to approach him. 
during the day. Mm-hmm. I want him to just let him do his thing because I trust him. And so, you know, inevitably you're sitting by, you know, with clients and they've got concerns and they're they're really concerned. And, you know, I feel like it's my job to sort of go to them, okay, you okay, we've hired someone who has incredible experience telling stories. Uh, I think I'm a good judge of people we hire. So you have to trust that this is going to work out. And even though you don't like what we're doing now, there's method to this, right? And so in the grand scheme of things, this one thing that you don't like that he's shooting, it doesn't have to make the edit, right? But if we don't shoot it, it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. That's always my thing. If we don't shoot this, it doesn't exist, right? And so I know you don't like it now, but as a part of 50 pieces to a film in an edit, I think you're going to like it a lot. And I think it could be really important to the story. So that's my whole perspective on shooting is, frankly, not just with Hubert, with any director, it's I protect their day, right? And and so I, I think it's, as soon as I sort of made that shift in my head about what my job is on set, it's not actually just to make clients happy. I've actually made clients really unhappy on set by saying, I refuse to go bother Hubert about this. Wow. I've literally said yeah. that to clients. I go, I refuse to go approach him about this because this is just, is it's not important in what we're trying to do. And, you know, they've been really upset at me. And, but I just, I hold my ground because I know in the end, they're going to be happy, right? And if, if, if I thought there was something truly wrong with the day, for sure, I'd, I'd go have that conversation. But I know what's being discussed for the most part, you know, about an actor's performance, let's say. Like, if it doesn't work for you right now, just in the context of the edit, things change so dramatically. Like, mm. you use one little shift of an actor's eye, and all of a sudden that performance that seems so terrible is that perfect golden moment that communicates all that you need to do. And you don't get to see all that on a monitor in front of you, right? Like, I miss so much on a shoot day. when I'm And, and I'm sitting at the, and looking at the monitor all day, and then I get to the edit and I'm like, I don't remember any of these amazing moments. So so actually, let's talk about that mm. because I also find it weird when a director sort of parachutes in and then never to be seen again. What's <laughs> your process, Hubert? What do you prefer? Do you do you like to be involved in the edit and even right down to the music and the color? Yeah, I, I do. I, I like because I guess coming from editing, I, I find that's um, such a crucial part for me to be involved in that stage of things. And I always, yeah, I'm always confused by the the fly out and you don't, you didn't even really see an edit. And it's like, well, how, how are you weighing in on, you know, how this is going to go or just the tone of it or certain things. So I, yeah, I really love to be involved in, and again, it doesn't have to be um, like a super lengthy, like I'm in there for two weeks and the door shut and no one can come in. It's really just to get that input, to go in in person if you can, I think is always like the best thing for me, just to kind of get a feel for the tone of it, of where it's going, of things that you're liking and not liking. Um, so that when the agency comes in, it's already kind of in a place tone wise and style wise that you were hoping for that you had in your head. Like I, you know, being an editor, I know perfectly well when I leave, like that's their time, you know, to explore and try different things, which is what it's about. Um, and, just to backtrack to one thing for production. I also, that's not to say, I was just thinking this, um, that the process of collaboration, like while I'm shooting is just that I'm doing whatever the fuck I want. Like, obviously there's, there's <laughs> I mean, that pretty, sounds fun. Yeah. That would be great. But it's also, I am using like 
the team and clients and all those people, they are weighing in with certain things that might not be working or other ideas that might come to their heads. And those often, you know, are something that I wasn't seeing. There's a blind spot. It's like, oh, I didn't think about that. So it's not, you know, it's not this 100% um, freedom. There is checks and balances in there. It's just uh, the process for how that gets done. Um, Yeah, yeah. and like with... With Hubert, because of his editing background as well, like when we did Boys Don't Cry, uh, Michelle Zukar was the editor on that, amazing editor. And it's usually in a place, by the time it gets for us to see it the first time, that there's not a lot for us to do other than just sort of look at like nuanced stuff, right? Like, because the story is so well told. I remember when we saw the edit for Boys Don't Cry, like my jaw dropped because I really wasn't there for a big chunk of that shoot. I was there like in and out because it was on a weekend and it was sort of a, a random time for me. And I was- You were uh, working on Casey House. I was working on Casey, Casey House. So I couldn't yeah. be there uh, a lot of that shoot. But I did come in for a couple moments where like, uh, you know, there's a there's a seminal moment in that film where a husband and wife are having a, a relatively violent fight in front of their young son. And I remember we weren't expecting- um, Hubert to direct, I guess, one of the actors to like throw, throw like a coffee, was a coffee mug? Yeah. And so like, we were sitting like far away from, from the actual performers. And all of a sudden we just hear these raised voices and, and it's really intense and they're fighting and they're going at it. And then she throws a coffee mug and it's just smashes across this kitchen. And we all just went like, it, it felt like we had witnessed a real mm-hmm. fight, a real uh, explosive moment between two human beings, and so there were little sort of flashes like that throughout um, throughout that film that gave me an idea of how it might be. But what I've what we didn't understand, I think, and I think this was all sort of the sort of that that magic that happens that you can't really plan for is that there are so many scenes in that film. There's like maybe like 25 scenes in that three minute film. And they're all like just, just a few seconds long, but in its totality, I didn't realize it was going to build to that kind of emotional, emotional resonance, at least for me uh, when I saw it, because when I saw it, I was like floored. And I was just like, this actually is so intense that uh, I'm worried actually that the, that, that the client, um, it might be too intense for what the client actually wanted, right? It's too triggering for the public because if you have been bullied or abused uh, or been uh, a victim of toxic masculinity, some of the scenes in that film are definitely triggering. Um, but again, unless people see those see those moments, which are rarely shown, um, they're not going to know how to stop them, right? So let, let's back up because I really want to tell the story of, of Boys Don't Cry. Yeah. How the film is so powerful. I have two young boys and I find it really hard to watch. Um, where does this begin? Cause this is another Joseph yeah. Hubert magic piece, but where does it start? Is this a client of yours? So, so my wife, uh, sits on the board for white ribbon. So, okay. yeah, so this is, and I also have two boys. Yeah. Um, so this was again, a, a very, um, you know, let's talk about personal project. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, and, Kelly came to me and just said, look, you know, we want to do something 
they've got like limited resources, but they want to do something, but they don't know what that is. And I think that's often the case with, um, with, with clients who, you know, they, it's like, we want to do something and here's what we want to say. So. Cause white ribbon is, is violence against women. That's right. Well, yeah. Well, gender based, yeah, gender based violence. violence. So gender -based it's, violence. it's actually the okay. world's largest group. It's in about 60 countries. Um, world's largest group of men dedicated to ending gender-based violence. Okay, so I okay, so then but boys don't cry to me doesn't naturally fall out of what I, I considered white ribbon to be about. Well, I think what they wanted to communicate because it is it's about men talking to men and boys, mm -hmm. right? From our perspective that this is I think what often gets misconstrued is this at the beginning it was like, "Oh, this is violence against women." It's mm -hmm. like, "But who's perpetrating the violence, right? right. It's men. Like this yeah. is, this is an issue that men are having. And so when, you know, we started talking to, to uh, white ribbon and Berto, it was the idea of um, toxic masculinity. What does this mean? You know, and I had actually never heard the term before, mm -hmm. before meeting with them. So it was like, what are the things that we say and do in our, you know, everyday lives and the way that we, uh, you know, treat uh, boys and girls differently? You know, and let's look at that. And and so, you know, when I, we, you know, kind of all got together and I, you know, talked to Joseph about it and it was like, yeah, because at that point it was nothing. Like there was literally just like that kind of, you know, I'd maybe written some notes on one page uh, and I talked to Joseph about it and then they went in and really like, you know, did the research, talk more. And they, then the agency? Ben Simon. Right. And then developed this, uh, this script. And again, it was like, when I first read that script, it was just like, it was so, um, emotional. I thought like in, in what they were, this idea of taking it from like, what if we took this from the stage of someone being born a boy into this, uh, into adolescence, into being a teenager and all those things that are affecting him over that. So what that he course. learns and what he sees and mm -hmm. his experience into adulthood. And, and that just, to me, that was it. Like it was all kind of like, oh, that's it. It's this, this narrative uh, of the boy. So, um, and was it a script when you came back to Hubert or was it, it was, just it, an idea? It was a script based on a piece of research, uh, that we had, uh, from this great strategist. Her name was Brittany. And she, found this study uh, that was basically a color spectrum of young boys' emotions. And so basically they had labeled the every emotion like uh, an infant or a two-year-old boy will show. And there was like this incredible kaleidoscope of color, like 200-something-odd colors to represent various emotions. And then you saw the same chart when a boy had hit around 15 or 16, and there were only a few colors left on the chart of what boys actually uh, were able to express. Wow. They literally lose the ability to express many emotions because society says men are like A, B, C, and D, mm -hmm. nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and what's left are a lot of the emotions that lead to toxic masculinity. And so this color chart was super informative because I remember we had this kind of like basic plot line mm. But then we also had this, when we talked to Hubert, it's like, we sh we literally talked to him about this color. And we were like, well, what if every scene had a color to represent like the emotion that you, that they had. And that as the film goes on, that color kind of drains away or it's left with just those few colors that are destructive 
destructive emotions, mm. shame, uh, aggression, uh, like those sorts of things. And so it became a very early topic of discussion around the script. And then uh, we had a series of writing sessions with mm. Hubert um, where we all got into a room and we just batted around ideas for scenes and what they would mean and the purpose uh, of each scene. Each scene had to have a very specific purpose, what we were trying to portray in someone's sort of like growth cycle into someone who could be, you know, um, express the emotions of someone who's toxic. And bef I think like with two or three sessions where we were, you know, like really tearing apart the script. And then I think we said, okay, we're ready to go to client with this. And so then with we one went, script, like you went to them, you're like, this is it pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think we had another campaign idea in the background, but I'm, I'm super transparent when I present stuff. Like, um, I usually present what, it, what I think we should be doing first. You do? You don't yeah. do the like, well, we'll do it no, second no. because <laughs> I don't do a shit. I don't even, I don't even do a shit sandwich. You don't. It's just like, you know, this you, is you it. You do that. You do the shit sandwich. You do the, the, a good one first. Yeah. And then a shitty one second. Yeah. And then like a really good one third. Showstopper third. <laughs> yeah, showstopper third. I, that's, that doesn't work. This is a, this is a real behind the scenes of, yeah. of what goes on. No, yeah, but I love yeah. it because you, you, you learn present. that, that that's how you're supposed well, to here, do it. Well, here, my psychology around this is that if you make, um, if you make them feel comfortable with the very first idea um, or you challenge them with the very first idea, you set the tone for uh, what the whole assignment's supposed to be. And so... Like for me, this is about being totally transparent. And so I don't even actually usually present, I'll present like the first idea, which is typically the idea that I think is the strongest. Mm -hmm. And then I, I start the presentation and go, just so you know, this is the idea I think we should do. Really? Like, You'll oh, say yeah, that? Oh yeah, all the time. This is just, you know, this is the idea I think we should do. Um, but we have two more. And even if it's like a packaged good or oh, a yeah, really like conservative yeah. brand, you're just yeah. super honest. I'm super honest because I just, I don't, um, I don't have it in me to like hedge my hedge my hedge my bet. You know what I mean? Like I only want to do one thing typically, right? And so, right? Like, there are usually we all? is a bait. Like you're like, ah, there's usually they, I like hope they pick this. Yeah, it's like there's, but I feel like if you're so passionate about it, that's that rubs off on them, mm -hmm. right? Like they, it's it's definitely something that's um, that that you can sort of. Uh, energize someone to sort of be see what you're seeing right and if if you're not that passionate about it then how do you expect clients to be passionate about it mm -hmm. it's like uh well any one of these three will do <laughs> yeah. we we love them all or one that's or what we always say right one or three we love them all or else you wouldn't have brought them yeah, before we always say that right it's just like it's covering yeah. your ass a little bit right like and i and believe me like i there are certainly situations where i'm doing that too but i think the majority of the situations i'm in right now uh, I'm very transparent and it's usually the first idea and you know and to White Ribbon's credit this was not an easy film for them to buy mm -hmm. it wasn't easy for them to uh, put a lot of force behind ultimately they were incredible allies in it and they saw the power in it but you know there are scenes in there where we are showing really abusive behavior mm -hmm. you know and um, that's not something that the organization typically wants to do, right? Because it, mm -hmm. again, it's triggering for a lot of people. Yeah. But I think as a whole, they they felt like the message of the spot was so bang on. And what was interesting about White Ribbon is that uh, Boys Don't Cry came out weeks after the Gillette spot 
came out. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that spot was savaged by the media and yeah, by the public a lot of a, a lot of, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think the criticism of that film was that they painted all men with the same brush. And I think why White Ribbon resonated, and I think uh, when we did like a social sentiment deep dive for what for White Ribbon afterwards, it was like ninety percent positive on the film. I think how we remained unscathed was by the fact that we just chose one story. So it's one story, but there were a multitude of experiences that many men can relate to. Right. Versus saying, here are all the experiences all men are having. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of helped us um, really skate through a lot of the media uh, controversy that was around toxic masculinity because that was all still going on because mm-hmm. uh, that was literally two and a half weeks before we launched and I just went, oh shit. Yeah, were you like, oh, God damn it, Gillette? No, I wasn't. I was like, oh fuck, like people hate that spot. Right. People oh, hate it. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so you were yeah. worried that... I, yeah, I it was, was all over Ad Week and Ad Age and CNN yeah. about the damage to the brand, right. and and I was like, "Fuck, I don't want to damage White Ribbon." Like, right. And even though I thought we had done all the right things, you just don't know how it's going to be received, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was, I was when I saw it, I was uh, someone sent it to me, and I was kind of scared. I was like, Uh-oh, "Yeah, like is but but I, I and then I remember I, I reached out to you, and, and you were like, "No." Like, we're okay. This is why, you know, and you were very analytical about it. But for me, just on an emotional level, I was like, you know, again, because it, it was so personal. Yeah, your wife is on the board. And, I, I, and you want to make something that, um, that people respond to. Right. You want them to have like a visceral reaction to something because, uh, you know, I felt passionate about it. Because, mm-hmm. And also, I think, you know, where ours was different is becoming from a personal place is that, all those things were true. Like they had to be true and that's, and they had to be honest. And those are all like things that, you know, growing up that you deal with or that you see or that you witness. And I didn't want to hit any of those notes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also I didn't feel like our, our viewpoint was we weren't there to preach to people. We weren't there to say, Hey, this is, you've got to do this and you've got to be better. It's more like, this is what's going on. Like, this is the fucking reality of the world that we're living in. And if you're trying to raise, you know, kids today, you're trying to raise boys and girls, like these are the, this is the messaging that's out there and we have to, we have to think about it. You know, I don't, I, that, that was it. It was like, it wasn't like, this is what you have to do. It's more like, let's, let's start to think about it. Let's start to talk about it. Were there any scenes that went too far where the client said, just not that scene? Yeah, there were two scenes they didn't want when they saw the final edit. They were like, this is incredibly powerful. We think this is amazing. But these two scenes have to come out. Did you feel that compromised anything? Oh, I said no. You were like, no, we're keeping them in? Oh, yeah. Are they in the film still? Oh, yeah. Oh, they're in there. I'm like a bulldog. (laughs) So how did you do it, though? I'm like a bulldog. (laughs) Hubert knows this. So again, like my job is to protect the day, Mm -hmm. my I feel like my job is to protect the integrity of what we were trying to do. And, you know, my whole perspective is these scenes go too far for a reason. And people aren't seeing scenes like this in films. And that's the whole problem, right? They can't identify them because they, they, they're they not seeing them because we're all having this reaction of like, well, we can't see, we can't be showing people these things, right? It's too... Mm-hmm. 
it's too much, right? Right. And well, it's your, like there is a lot of conversation about triggering and a hundred percent. But I mean, yeah. I just don't know how you solve the problem unless you show people what the problem uh, is. I agree. Right. Like yep. it's just it, yeah. you know it boils down to that. So I remember. Um, and to be clear, a client on on this is absolutely amazing. They just were like, these two things go too far. And I was like, here's why they're staying in the film. And they go too far for a reason. And I wrote a long rationale. I remember yeah. uh, CC'd Hubert on the email as well. And they came back and they went, okay. What, really? Yeah. You're one beautifully crafted email? I'm a bulldog. Like a dog with a bone you don't understand. I'm like, sometimes I'm a, I, I think it's just the fact that they just don't want to put up with me. <laughs> they just don't want to have I to think fight. It's trust. I think it's trust. It is. But I'm also, I have lost 22 or 24 years of advertising. I just have lost all... I used to feel so anxious going into a client meeting mm-hmm. yep. when I knew there was something difficult we had to talk about or difficult to present. I have none of that. I'm dead do inside. Do you really? I'm dead inside. <laughs> so you're just Literally, like, I do not. A client could be like, I fucking hate this. I fucking hate you. <laughs> and I'm like, well, tell me where this is coming from. <laughs> like, I, I literally don't feel it. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> like I'm dead inside, literally, from this business. But like, is it because you just, you're not, or is it the opposite? You just don't take it personally, and you're like, I don't. Here's what I really believe for your brand and or your cause, and I, this is what's right. Look, I don't take it personally, even uh, um, for a millisecond. And ultimately, like, look, they're paying for it, so they can they can say, shut the fuck up, Joseph. <laughs> shut the fuck up and go back to your stupid little corner. <laughs> like they can say that to me at any time, right? And they'll go, okay, right. you bought you. This is your money. This is your yeah. work, ultimately. Right. Yeah. Um, but until they say that, I'm like, absolutely, I have no problem in saying no, right? But, and 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 again, have no emotional reaction or anxiety about doing that because if I believe in it, then hopefully I can, you know, win them over, you know. But the other thing is also like. I think when I started out, it was this idea of making people happy, right? Like as directors, yeah. like, oh, is everyone, I'd come back. Is everyone happy? Is everyone yes. happy? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually doesn't mean that it's a good shoot. Just because like, if everybody is happy in that room, then I'm probably like, there's probably something because do you know what I mean? Like there should be some sort of pushback. There should be some sort of like, oh, like this is kind of crazy. Like this is kind of out there if you want the work to be good mm-hmm. you know if you want the work to be like super medium and like this is okay and everyone's happy like and there are those projects right that as you said like you kind of know what it boards. is going yeah. in yeah, yeah and you shoot the boards and the client's happy and everyone like gives her handshake and they leave but in order to do i think like the good work it just can't work that way mm-hmm. because there's no way that everyone in that room should be just totally comfortable and blessing every frame and every decision is like as a group we've come together and said this is it because it just it doesn't I don't think good work works that way I think it is pushback and it is discussion and it is okay did we go far enough did we go too far like there needs to be a bit of that and it doesn't I'm not saying it has to be you know people yelling in the room and saying, you know, telling Joseph to fuck off and go back to his corner. <laughs> but there needs to be, um, yeah, there needs to be some, something that makes it, yeah, not uncomfortable, but yeah, like I, I can't go in and it, 
not everyone should be happy in that room and just patting me on the back. I, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think that's where good work comes from. I always find that the best end results come from shoots I go into a little bit afraid, right? Like just a little bit afraid and a little bit tense about it. And like I'm a big fan of tension. I call it positive tension versus negative tension. Negative tension is like like there's that pit in your stomach that you're like, this is not right. If there's that tension that is like, oh, is this too far? Like that's that to me is just the right amount of feeling on a set, mm. right? Or, you know, like you're you're shooting stuff and and, and you're like, I don't know how this is even gonna fit in the edit, right? And you've got that thing in your head going, we got to move on, we got to move on, we got to move on, we got to move on. We're like, we're losing the day, we're losing the day. And that to me is a good place to, believe it or not, be on it. Because it means like we are like pushing the edge the whole time we're on set. And we're trying to get as much great stuff as possible. We're pushing the actors, we're pushing clients, we're pushing everyone to sort of um, like really be their best, right? Because I think it makes client it, it puts clients in a position where they're at their best as well you know like yeah. when they have to confront the agency and go okay well this is what this is making me really uncomfortable right i actually think that's a that's a good place for a client to be in right as long as they feel like ultimately people are doing the things that they're supposed to be doing for the right intention and the mm-hmm. right reason it all works out right yeah. so if intent if intentions are 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 not the same that's a whole different ball game but if For the sure. client has the same intention as the agency which has the same intention as hubert yeah. then it's all going to work out it always yeah. does yeah it's it's getting back to the idea of like well what do you want people to feel like if you want them to feel absolutely nothing right yeah right like <laughs> yeah. that's that's the intent yeah. of it is like i just want wallpaper i just want something yeah. to come on that people don't pay attention to don't watch and there's like maybe there's some brand linkage in there and that'll right like that'll be it like yeah. then then you know that's fine as you said like that's the board and that's the intent but I don't think that's most people's intent. I do think that most people do want something that stands out and is good and in some, you know, it doesn't have to be like it, you know, one at can, but it can still be pushing the boundaries of what is good work within, you know, the work that they're already doing. So before we wrap up today, I think you t- touch on a really good point, which was previously, I think 20, 15, 20 years ago, it was shoot the boards and the brand linkage and my pack shot. But we live in this world now of you know, the, the push-pull medium is totally different. We used to push commercials on people. Your 30-second commercials came in on your episode of Friends, and you had to watch them. Now, we're skipping commercials. Pre-roll is six seconds long. Where is film and commercial work specifically? Like, we, as advertisers, where do you see film fitting in in this new world of Instagram, six-second YouTube, no attention span, and nobody watches commercials? I feel like there are these polar opposites that are developing. And I think a lot of it's also the influence of Netflix. So at the same time as you're being told to watch things in tiny bite sizes, you have these long format. I think we're like in a golden age of film right now with Netflix spending billions and billions and billions of dollars on production. Artists who have had, you know, no chance at getting their, their things filmed all of a sudden having a chance. Right. And, I feel like it's it's uh, altering people's attention spans a little bit to to appreciate a longer format as well. 
And what I'm finding in, ter- in particular of commercial film is there's the six second bit, but then now I can sell clients on the 90 second bit mm-hmm. that it comes from, right? And so as long as it's thoughtfully planned, you can have that emotive, incredible piece that people go, I understand and I love your brand. But then they also get that quick hit of um, you know, candy that they need in that six second ad to be able to go, okay, the jog my memory. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's the wine I need to buy. That's the, the bank I need to go to. That's the, so I feel like, uh, video has been stretched to either side, really long format, beautiful, emotive, stunning work. And then the shortest possible bite-sized candy that just reminds people that you're there. Um, and I don't mind this place where we are right now. I think, more so than ever, I've been able to convince clients to really double down on long form video. You know, and again, if you do that though, you have to go all the way with it. You can't you can't be half assed about it, right? Because if you shoot a mediocre long film, that's, skip. That's just the, that's the <laughs> worst, right? That's right. The worst. Yeah. You know, it's like so self indulgent, or it's just like you look at this film, you're like, how? Why did they even think there was 40 seconds, let alone a hundred seconds mm-hmm. in this piece of shit? Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It It is interesting. Like from, from my end as well, like, you know, for me, I, you know, I look through a lot of reels, a lot of like DP reels and edited reels, but yeah, you're seeing less and less of, of the 30 as a format for people who are, yeah, like trying to show their work, you know, for other directors that I, I look at their reels as well and get influenced. Like, it's it's a real dinosaur of a of a of a format like the thirty second because they you know you want these other pieces that kind of show more and show more of the range and yeah feel much more narrative or bigger you know like I I'm I'm personally like I'm super excited about that because that's it kind of blends for me like the original intent of when I started directing and wanting to make longer format pieces and then also commercials it's actually the perfect kind of medium. Uh, is that longer format, like, you know, nine, whether it's a 90, a 60, two minutes, you know, four minutes, like it just gives you so much more freedom to kind of play in that, in that world. Um, but yeah, it, it has to be good. It has to be, um, yeah, to draw your attention and make it last for that entire time is, is tricky, but it's, it's fun, fun challenge for me. Well, guys, this has been an unbelievable episode. I feel like we unpacked so much, uh, not only in the great work, but in the way we creatively from the agency side could work better with people on the post side and the director side and the and the creative process. Um, any final thoughts? No, other than I hope to have another great 10-year run with Hubert <laughs> as my work husband. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I think we'll have some some great years together, don't you? Th- don't you think so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's been actually it's been it's been really looking back on it has actually been really nice yeah. to to think about like what works and yeah, just sometimes it's like the synergy of those things coming together. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the next project and yeah, keep it growing going. old together. Oh, guys! <laughs> well, I can't wait to see what you guys do next. It, it's always so brilliant. Thank you so much for yeah. being on thank the show. Thank you for having us, Lauren. Yeah, it's been thank great. You. Thanks to Joseph Benici and Hubert Davis for being with us today. And thank you for listening to the ADCC podcast that proves it's not just about creativity, it's about getting it created. The ADCC is a nonprofit dedicated to encouraging excellence in Canadian advertising and design. Follow us on Instagram at the ADCC. 
Got an idea for an episode? Email created at the adcc.ca.